Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. So God's Amen. people said, Amen. Let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it should be, shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things, and to whom be glory forever. Amen. So lift up your hearts. Father God, the fountain of our joy is that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You were, you are, and you will be. Before the earth was formed, before you brought forth the mountains, before the sun hung in a sky of brightness, you were. At this very moment, at this breath and this heartbeat on this first day of September in the year of our Lord 2019, you are. When all your enemies are defeated, when death and Hades are finally cast into the lake of fire, when the books are opened and the goats are sent into everlasting torment while the sheep enter into the kingdom of the Father to enjoy the eternal delights and glories of your presence, you will be. So almighty God, we worship you now through Jesus Christ, your son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end, and amen. 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 Idolatry is a vicious cycle. The worshiper defies the commandment of God to not have any gods, have any other gods, and then makes a graven image out of wood, gold, or some other material substance. And then there sits their idol, cold, lifeless, powerless, deaf. If you look at the second commandment and then notice the idols, you might quip, uh, they must not have gotten the memo. But though the idol itself sits there in deaf defiance of God's commands, something terrible is occurring to the worshiper. They are becoming just like their idol. They've traded the source of all being, life, and pleasure for an impotent, blind, deaf, and stupid block of stuff. Idols are cheats. They promise joy, pleasure, and blessing, but they demand that you sacrifice your joy, pleasure, and blessings to them. They demand that you shed your blood to make them happy. Is your idol gold? Does your life revolve around the accumulation of material wealth such that you sacrifice your family, your peace of mind, your integrity on its altar? Is your idol power? Do you kneel to kiss the toe ring of upward mobility, fearing what may occur if you lose your place in the pyramid of society? Is your idol sex? Do you believe that the, the lie, that gratification of that desire is yours by right, and thus you partake of the sacrament of consuming others' bodies at the price of their shame and your so-called pleasure? If you continue to worship these idols, you will soon be deaf, dead, and dumb. They cannot offer you life. They will only cheat you out of your joy. So topple them, grind them to powder, burn them to the ground, and as Spurgeon once said, down with all idols and up with King Jesus. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So let us prepare to do so by singing, Lord, thou hast searched me. 
Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Father God, we may think idolatry was a sin that only afflicted our ancient ancestors. So Father, we pray that you would peel open our eyes to see the graven images that fill our culture and have transfixed our hearts. We fill stadiums to revel in a ball flying around. We pursue the perception that we're the Pinterest perfect family. We refuse to be generous, choosing frivolous leisure instead. We saturate ourselves with sexualized entertainment and turn a blind eye to the corpses of the unborn, which are the cost of our nation's perverse desires. And we yawn with our mind elsewhere when we are to be worshiping you with all our heart, soul, and mind. If we in the church regard such sins in our own hearts or in our own lives, we know this prayer will be ineffectual. So we confess our individual sins to you now. And Selah. We do this in Jesus' mighty name, and amen. amen. Let's rise for the assurance of God's pardon. Proverbs 28, 13. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Christ shows us our sin, and we respond by not hiding it, but confessing it as the wicked idolatry of self that it is. He has promised mercy for those who confess and forsake their sin. So because of this truth, I can declare unto you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. The text this morning is from the epistle of 1 John. These are the words of God. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Our Father and God, we thank you for the word before us. I pray your spirit would be present with us. I pray that you take this text and apply it to our lives, our hearts, our families, every, every place we need to have it applied. Father, I pray that you'd be kind to us and do this because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're beginning a, a series of short, a, a short series of sermons through 1 John, but the messages are going to be of a topical uh, nature, a little bit different from what we normally do when we go through a book. Although these messages are going to revolve around particular topics, I believe that when we're done, we're going to, we will have apprehended the larger message of the book via a somewhat different route, different that is, than from the normal verse by verse exposition. So over the next few weeks, I would like to ask you to read and reread this short letter and to do so with the following words in mind. As it happened, they all begin with the letter L, but that was more or less an accident. It's, it was not a, an exercise of a preacher's fondness for alliteration. Um, if I worked in laundry or something like that, you would have cause to uh, worry, but all of them begin with the letter L. The words that we're going to be considering uh, uh, with each message are going to be lust, liar, or liars, life, light, and love. And the first of these is lust. 
So if we focus on what these words mean and how they're used in 1 John, I believe by the time we're done, we're going to have a good grasp of what John is after in this book. Now the text here in 1 John 2 says, love not the world. Now this is an interesting thing. If you were to, um, if you were to tell a non-believing friend or next door neighbor, oh, you went to church and what did, they, what did you learn in church? Um, the, and you said something like, well, we learned we weren't supposed to love. Or, or quit loving so much, or don't love. Uh, people say, "What? What?" Well, I thought I thought love is a good. I thought love was a good thing. Well, a certain kind of good love. Good love is a good thing. Bad love is a bad thing. We're sometimes tempted to think that certain verbs are inherently virtuous, but the virtue or vice in any transitive verb is found in the first place in the direct object, and secondly in the adverb. So it matters what you love. It matters what you hate. If someone says, I love the devil, that's not a good thing. If someone says, I hate child porn, that is a good thing. Love and hate are good. I love God, that's good. I love my mom, that's good. I love apple pie, that's fine. Loving, depending on the great, uh, on the direct object, it's fine to love. But if the direct object is wrong, it's a great sin to love. And this text tells us, love not, do not love the world. Uh, the other way we go wrong is with the adverb. Um, so what do you love? That's the direct object. And how are you loving it? If you love evil things as opposed to righteous things, then that is a direct object problem. If you love God and the Bible and Jesus and happy things, but you're doing it in a spirit of self-righteousness, then that's an adverb problem. So the Pharisee went down to the temple to pray. Well, it's a good thing to pray. It's a good thing to be in the temple. It's a good thing to say, I thank you, God, as he, he did. Everything was right. He was, he was doing everything right, except that he was doing it in a spirit of self-righteousness, which meant that he was doing everything wrong. It's, it's good to read your Bible. But if you're reading your Bible so that every, everybody that knows you will realize that you read your Bible more than they do, then that's a, that's a spirit of vainglory. You're, 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 you're playing the game of my Bible's more underlined than yours, or I, I pray I'm more of a prayer warrior than you are. That's a problem with the adverb. So you can have a problem with the direct object or you can have a problem with the adverb. The verb by itself doesn't tell you anything. The verb alone doesn't tell you anything. In our text here, we are directly commanded not to love the world. Don't love the world. Not only so, but the word is the world-famous Greek verb agapao. Um, the noun form is agape. You may have heard that agape love is God's love. It's God-like love. No, <laughs> no, that's not true. It all depends on the direct object. and the it, uh, Agape love can be wrong, uh, sinful from top to bottom. Uh, agapao here, don't love the world. Don't love the world. Don't do it. Now, this is very interesting because we can set this passage right next to the most famous verse in the Bible, which is John 3.16, God so loved the world. Not only do we have the same verb, agapao, we have the same direct object, cosmos, but we have the direct object defined different ways. So, don't love the world, John says, or the things in the world. That's verse 15. This kind of prohibited love is exclusionary. If a man has it, then he does not have the love of the Father in him. Also verse 15. No man can serve two masters. One love will expel the other one. 
John then gives us a list of things that are seen in the world, the things that he had in mind with his earlier broad prohibition. When he said, don't love the world, he had a particular definition of the world in mind. We're going to get to that as we unpack this passage. So he, he gives us a list of the things that are in the world, the things he had in mind. The first is the lust of the flesh, verse, verse 16. The second is the lust of the eyes, also 16. And then third, the pride of life, verse 16. These are not of the Father, but rather of the world. And this is why one excludes the other. If you love the Father, you're not going to love the world in this way. If you love the world in this way, then you're not loving the Father. These are not of the Father, but rather of the world. And this is why one excludes the other. The world is transient, John says. It passes away. The world is transient. It passes away. If you drive out the Troy Highway, you're going to drive by the Moscow Cemetery. This is a small town, but there are 14,000 people buried in the Moscow Cemetery. And you, when you drive by that, that cemetery, you are driving by a lot of dead lusts, a lot of dead desires, a lot of dead ambitions. It's all gone. The world, all the glory, how many awards do you think those people got? How many accolades? How many compliments? How many, how many of those people achieved the, the goals that they desperately wanted? And how many were miserable and unhappy because they didn't get the goals that they, they wanted? Well, it's all, regardless, the world is transient. It's all gone. The lusts within the world are transient, just like the world is transient, and they too pass away. Verse 17, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. So the one who lives with God in mind, the one who lives in accordance with what the Father calls us to, is living in the light of eternity. The person who lives in accordance with the lusts of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is living for something. He's giving something He's giving himself to a set of values that are going to all come to pieces. It's all going to come to nothing. The world is transient, and God is forever. So that's the, uh, that's the summary of the text. Let's consider the heart of worldliness, the heart of worldliness. Now, this is, the, uh, this is where many conservative Christians go wrong. There are numerous... Um, conservative, Bible-believing, fundamental uh, traditions within the Christian world that stand against worldliness. But when they stand against worldliness, they almost always stand against things like theater or makeup or beer or playing cards. And that is, that is basically because you can identify the theater pretty easily, and you can identify a can of beer pretty easily, and you can identify makeup. You either have it on or you don't have it on. Uh, it's either there or it isn't there. The lipstick is either there or it isn't. And so you can tell if someone's being worldly. Oh, she's being worldly. She's got lipstick. Or he's being worldly. He's uh, drinking a can of beer. It should be so simple. It's not, that, it's not that simple. It doesn't work that way. So these three things that John says that characterize worldliness lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So the sense that God, John is using the term worldliness here, or the concept worldliness, this all taken together is the very definition of worldliness. And in order to have this thing called worldliness, you do not need Times Square bedecked in neon. 
You do not need downtown Babylon on a Saturday night. You don't need Vanity Fair. You don't need those things. All you need for worldliness to exist is one prohibited tree. That's all you need for worldliness to be a temptation, one prohibited tree. When Adam and Eve were contemplating eating the fruit, when Eve took the fruit and then when Adam was contemplating following her in this, they were doing this in a perfect world. There was not a bad side of town. They were not doing this on the wrong side of the tracks. They had not been influenced by Hollywood movies or, or corrupting sitcoms. They had not been affected by any of the things that we would call the, that worldly apparatus. All they had was one prohibition. I want you to consider what John says here and what it says in Genesis. For all that is in the world, I'm italicizing with my voice, the lust of the flesh, there's one, and the lust of the eyes, there's two, and the pride of life, there's three, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Well, look at what it says in Genesis, in Genesis 3, 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Lust of the flesh, good for food. Lust of the eyes, pleasant to the eyes. Pride of life, desired to make one wise. Everything that John says is part of worldliness, the temptation to love the world, was present in the Garden of Eden. Our first parents sinned by sinning the sin of worldliness. Our, they, they sinned disregarding God's commandment, and they went away from God's way because they were following the world. And all the things that we call the world weren't there yet. The only thing that was there was a tree that had good food. It was uh, good for food. It was pleasant to look at. And it was the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. Now, I've used the word lust a number of times. It's in the text. But when we moderns use the word lust, we usually mean desire in the sexual sense. Although we still have the older sense in uh, modern English in words like wanderlust, or if, if someone says he has a real lust for life, we're not using it in the sexual sense, or wanderlust is not sexual. But usually if just the word lust is used, it is being used in the sexual sense. Now, John's usage would certainly in include the sexual aspect of it. The, uh, sec our sexuality is very much part of the whole um, apparatus that the world is using. It's certainly part of it, but he's not limiting it to that at all here. The word is epithumia. The word is epithumia that's rendered in the King James as lust and simply means craving or intense desire. Craving or intense desire. Craving of the flesh, craving of the eyes, and then the pride of life. The word is thumia. The word thumia means desire and epithumia means heap big desire, intense desire. Think of it as an, an intensifying prefix. If I said there's desire and then there's hyper desire, there's desire and then there's super desire. That's what we have here. It's an intense craving. And that intense craving, uh, well, all of us are born into this world as a bundle of desires. You may have noticed, but newborns have opinions. Newborns have opinions. They want things. They, not only do they want things, they want things right away. Not only do they want things, they want the same things that you want. 
You want food? They want food. They want shelter? You want shelter. They want warmth? You want warmth? They, they, it's, now, what, what's happening with little kids, particularly with toddlers, when, when, when the little kid grows up to the point where they are vocal and they can explain themselves, they, uh, the, the desires they have are oftentimes very much on the surface. You, if you've perhaps, many of you parents, not perhaps, if you're parents at all, you have had this conversation. Um, no, Billy, no, Susie, no, Johnny, uh, not right now, or I don't want you to do that. And, and he comes back with the, an aspect of this that you clearly have not taken into account. But I want to. But I see the thing that you're saying no to, I want. I want. Now, when you fast forward 20 years, nothing has changed. Well, one thing has changed. We've learned to deck out our I want in socially res respectable language. We learn not to act, we, we learn not to have our desire out there just rawly stated. We say things like, well, it's not the promotion so much, it's the principle of the thing. It's, it was not the pay raise so much, it's the principle of the thing. Or we, we express our desires, but inside we're just the same little toddler saying, I want, I want, and that's all there is to it. And there's no arguing with it. If you have a lust for something, if you have a lust ambitious, an ambition lust, or a promotion lust, or a glory lust, or a sexual lust, or a uh, chemical dependency lust, if you crave, if you want, if you have this intense desire, there is no arguing with it, right? There's no arguing with it because it wants what it wants. Now, what, what do you do then? Well, you don't argue with it. You have to kill it. You, there's no arguing with it. This is, this is not a seminar. This is a war. We're, not, we're supposed to mortify our lusts. We're not supposed to jolly them along. We're not supposed to get our lusts to behave a little bit better. So, this means in simply um, extreme, intense desire. Now, the world is described, the world that we're not to love is described in a particular way. And this is, this is important because remember, God so loved the world and love not the world. That's what we're juxtaposing. Of course, we know from the most famous verse in the Bible that God loves the world. We see the same thing repeated here in 1 John, 1 John 2, 2, God loves the world. 1 John 4, 9, God loves the world. Christ is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. When God loved the world, and this is important, when God loved the world, he was loving, uh, he was loving sinners in need of salvation. When we are told not to love the world, we are being told not to love the way these sinners have locked themselves into their need to be saved. When John 3 says, John 3:16, agapao and cosmos, the word for world, God so loved the world, what that, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should, should not perish but have everlasting life, that verse is saying, God so loved the prisoners. God so loved the prisoners. When we're being told not to love the world, we're being told to not love the prison. We're being told, don't love the prison, don't love the bars, don't love the chains, don't love the apparatus of imprisonment, don't love the world system. That's what he's talking about. John says, love not the world, i.e., this, this, and this, and this. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride. Those are the chains. 
Those are the chains that the world uses. God loves the world. When we're, when we're talking about God's love for the world, we're talking about God's love for all of humanity redemptively considered. When we're prohibited from loving the world, we're told not to love the world's way of doing things. Or we're told not, don't love the world's apparatus, the, the world's mode of operation. So, there's a world system still sunk in sin, and that system of worldliness has certain defined characteristics. First, it passes away. 1 John 2.17, the world does not recognize us as the sons of God, and they fail at this recognition because they did not understand the Lord for who he was. 1 John 3.1, 1 John 4.17, the world hates genuine believers. 1 John 3.13, the world is filled up with lying prophets. 1 John 4.1, the world has the spirit of Antichrist, which denies the incarnation. 1 John 4.3, and the world wants to listen to its own. 1 John 4, 5. If a worldling prophet, if a lying prophet comes along, the world already wants to listen. If a true prophet comes along, the world already wants to not listen. The world already wants to reject it. So if somebody, by some booking accident, some prophet by some booking accident, makes it on a mainline television show and he starts to speak the truth, in public with the mic on, it's going to be 30 seconds before the mic mysteriously cuts off and they cut away to a commercial. The world doesn't want to hear it. And, and they know what it smells like. They know what it tastes like. They can see it coming. And they, can, they recognize their own, and they, don't, they, they refuse to recognize believers who come with the Word of God. But this world, this world that has all of its system of doing things, this world is nevertheless overmastered by believers who have the great God with them and within them, 1 John 4, 4. And so the world is overcome and conquered by us using the instrumentality of faith, 1 John 5, 4. What is it that conquers the world? What is it that conquers the world? Is it not our faith? So we are, think of it this way, on the Mount of Olives, right before Jesus ascended into heaven. He said, I'm going to go away. I'm going to send the Spirit. Don't, do any, don't try any of this until the Spirit has come upon you. But I'm going to go into heaven, and I want you to go back into Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit. But when the Spirit descends upon you, here's the plan. I want you to disciple all the nations. I have all authority, and I want you to go out and disciple all the nations. I want you to baptize all the nations. And I want you to teach all the nations of the world to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the plan. That's the plan. He's talking to a ragtag group of people who most of them, most of his 12 disciples were blue-collar workers, workers with their hands. The only apostle, and he came later, who had a formal theological education was the apostle Paul. And his theological education for many years got in the way. Right? It, was, it was the thing that hindered him. So he has a, a group of fishermen. A, uh, Levi was a tax collector. It was a motley group. And he says, all right, I'm leaving you, and here's the plan. Conquer the world on three. You know, ready, set, go. Conquer the world. And they, now, how many divisions did they have? How many regiments? How many rockets did they have? How, how many legislatures did they have? 
How many well-placed presidents and prime ministers did they have? They had none of that. What did they have? They had the gospel, they had the word of God, they had water, and they had bread and wine on three. And, and this is the thing. It worked. It worked. And how many divisions, how many divisions did the world have? More than enough. How many armies? More than enough. How many impressive cities? Remember when the Lord was tempted, the, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, all right? The world is an impressive sight. The world is an impressive sight. And it really, take, it really um, you know, takes you and you say, wow, that, that's impressive. It's not the thing. It's not the thing we want, but it's impressive. So, uh, Nancy and I just came back from France on vacation. We were in or Orange, France, and we went to see the Roman amphitheater there. And it was quite impressive. Caesar Augustus, it was built during the reign of Caesar Augustus. You've seen pictures of many amphitheaters with the seating still there, but this still had the, the building, the, the stage behind it was still intact. So you're walking down a modern sidewalk, and right next to you is a building city block long that was built during the reign of Caesar Augustus, and they're still using it for community theater productions, right? This is, that's impressive. The builders who did that should be proud of themselves, but not the wrong way, right? Direct object, adverb. They should be pleased that it's still standing and is being used. So the world is glorious. The world has a lot to, whoa, that's something, that's something, and that's something. But it's not everything. It's not what we're after. We are supposed to conquer the world, and we do so by faith. We have the gospel, we have the word of God, we have water, we can baptize the nations, and we can teach them obedience, we can call them to discipleship, call them to follow after Jesus Christ. So, when it comes to moral theology, it is a commonplace to say that the cardinal sin is the sin of pride, that the cardinal sin is the sin of pride. And considered from a certain vantage point, I believe that that is certainly true. It is certainly true on the individual level. Pride can be found at the center of every motion of every sin. The motion of temptation in every sin is the temptation to put self first, and that in its essence is pride. But if we zoom out and consider our lot as interconnected individuals, zoom out so that all of a sudden we're a society, zoom out so that there are multiple people involved, I would want to argue that the fundamental sin, the cardinal sin, is the sin of worldliness. We are prideful individuals, certainly, but we are worldly together, right? When, when there's more than one of us, we're, there's the sidelong glance is operating. When there's more than one of us, competition, vainglory, striving, all of a sudden, worldliness is in the picture. Worldliness is our mortal enemy, because it pits one rule against another, the rule of God in Christ over against the rule of whatever is in fashion according to all the regnant not-Christs. All the ruling not-Christs, they have one way of doing business, the Father has another way of doing business. And, and what it boils down to is this, the world says, your life for mine. God says, my life for yours. God says, my life for you. Remember, God so loved the world that he did what? That he gave his only begotten son. God loved the world so that he gave. He gave himself. So when Christ is given to us, 
Jesus says to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That means if Christ is given to us, that means the Father is given to us. And the Father is given to us and Christ is given to us by means of the Holy Spirit of God, who is the, the way in which Christ is given, the way in which the Father is given. And when we have the Father given to us, when the Father is given to us, we find ourselves doing business the way the Father does business. When the world is given to us, we do business the way the world does business. The world has a certain operating system, and the Father has a certain operating system, and there are no way, there's no way that these two ways of doing business can be reconciled together. So the biblical view here is binary. There are only two roads that you can walk, only two. There are two tables you can eat from, and only two. That's the choice. And, you can only, and once you choose, you can only walk one road. You can only eat from one table. There are two houses where you may choose to live and only two. Those two houses are Christ and the world. You are either in Christ or you are in the world. And if you get to know Christ well, you will recognize that world in an instant. Whatever getup she put on this time. Her makeup changes, her tattoos are all temporary, her outfits change, but it, it is always the same allure. It's always the same come on. In James 4.4, 4, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. I want you to notice how stark that is. That's a binary thing. It's God of the world. Friendship with the world means you're hostile to God. Friendship with God means you're hostile to the world. Now, that doesn't mean that you're hostile to, the hostile to the idea of saving sinners. Remember, God so loved the world, right? God so loved the world. So we can love the world the way God loves the world. We can uh, be pleased with the things that God is pleased with, but we cannot be, we have to have undying enmity with the way the world does business. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, beware. When John writes to us about turning away from lust, he is not talking about a weekend on Bourbon Street in the first instance. He is talking about a lust for respectability, although it is a respectability that always makes room for a little sin on the side. Sin is always included in the annual budget. Some of it is out in the open, while some of it is tolerated with a wink and a nod. Rarely, you know, occasionally you will have some outlier, you will have somebody who is sort of totally abandoned, totally given over to the pursuit of uh, his, his or her desires. That you have the occasional Jeffrey Epstein who is given over to this, this naked pursuit of, of me, 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 me. That's occasional. The, but the world puts up with all that stuff. They just want it to be respectable. They want it to, on the side, they want to be able to have a good opinion of themselves at the end of the day while making room for this worldliness. And you've got to be realistic and you've got to, you can't have extreme views on these things. They budget for the sin. So the world is glorious. The world is not, uh, the, when the worldly system is not one nonstop orgy. The world system, remember, Jesus was tempted to bow down to the devil because the devil pointed out to him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. It was a glorious thing. There, there's a lot that you would say that's praiseworthy or that's impressive or that's really, that's really something. So what does it boil down to? Your desires, your desires reveal 
who your father actually is. Your desires reveal who your father actually is. Lusts are always inherited from your father. And desires are always passed down to sons and daughters. The author of 1 John also wrote the Gospel of John, and he says in John 8, 44, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye, uh, ye will do. Ye, ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. I take this as not just you're going to lust the way your father the devil tells you to, but I think it's you're going to lust the same way that he does. In other words, the devil has forces driving him. He has his own sense of superiority, his own se- The devil is self-righteous. The devil is not, um, uh, it, it's, it's not like we sometimes assume where we, we, where we take it as the devil is an orc. The devil is self-righteous. The Bible says he's a, the devil appears as an angel of light. His ministers appear as angels of light. They appear to have something to, commendable about them. Year of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. So the alternative is Christ, always Christ, only Christ. Christ crucified, Christ buried, Christ risen, Christ enthroned, and by the Spirit of God, Christ in you. Let me say that again. Christ crucified, Christ buried, Christ risen, Christ enthroned, and by the Spirit of God, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the only one who can bring you a new father. No one comes to the Father, Jesus said, but by me. In John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So new father, new desires. Old father, same desires. New father, new desires. Old father, same desires. Born into a new life, you find that that new life wants new things. All your tangled lusts are taken away, and they are replaced with a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Not a thirst for Pharisaism, not an eagerness for laws made out of hammered tin, not a hunger for religious bread made out of legalistic sawdust, not an intense desire to become a self-righteous fop, not all screwed up in the adverbs, not a faux holiness. No, a new father gives you the desire to be truly holy, which is to say he gives you a deep desire to be happy, a deep desire to be happy. Wanting to be holy is wanting to be happy. This replaces the old desire, the old lust, which while it pretends to want happiness, people, when people are in the world system and they're chasing after one party, they want to drink or the sex or whatever it is, whatever they're pursuing, music, wealth, ambition, whatever it is, they're pretending to be chasing after happiness. But what they're actually wanting is to be unhappy on their own terms. That's what they want, is to be unhappy on their own terms. We would much rather be unhappy on our own terms than to be happy on God's terms. And that is, in fact, the heart of all of our problems. And this is why I think Milton had a good instinct when he when he has Satan in Paradise Lost, Lost say, it, it's better to rule in hell than to, uh, than to serve in heaven. It's better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. I'd rather be miserable my way. I'd rather be miserable with a me-do-it kind of attitude than to be contented and happy on God's terms. 
I'd rather be in the ditch in my car with that car wrapped around a tree just so long as I'm behind the wheel. If I'm behind the wheel, then I'm miserable and unhappy, but this is, this is what I've done with it. If I surrender the whole thing and I give it over to God and he gives me new father, new Christ, you know, Christ comes to me and he gives me a new father and new desires, those desires are desires for true happiness. So when he becomes your father, when you are born anew, you've gladly surrendered that point. And when you've surrendered the point, you have said your farewells to the world's system of lust and wanting and striving. It's all got to go because the world's got one way of doing things and the Father's got another way of doing things. And if you have the Father, you don't have the world. If you have the world, you don't have the Father. And if you have the Father, you have the fulfillment of everything we were created for. We, we find our position, we know who we are. We find ourselves in the right place. We find ourselves in the right relationship. Everything comes back into focus. But if you want to live in the disjointed and demented way that the world wants you to live, you will have the, the sole satisfaction of having made your own hash of it. And that's the only, sat only satisfaction, and that is a very short-lived one. Our Father in God, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for this epistle. We thank you for this word. I pray that you'd help us understand in our own hearts and our own lives what the lusts that need to be mortified are. Father, I pray you'd help us to see and learn and understand according to your spirit. The Lord's Supper is the most joyous feast this world has ever known. It's where sinners are welcomed into God's home and clothed with white robes of Christ's righteousness while a banner of love hovers over the whole festival. Indeed, this is a celebration, and it is not limited in scope to just a certain people group. The nations are invited. But while the world is invited to the festal celebration, we must remember that joy and reverence preside. Sinful man would love to turn this into a meal where everyone is welcome, but there are no rules, no order, no standard, and thus turn it into a feast where appetite presides. Pagan feasts of old often demonstrated this by their debauched and lecherous gluttony. No, this feast has hard truths which fence it. We're told in one place that eating this meal without faith, which is eating it unworthily, turns this bread and wine into damnation. In another place, we're told that if someone is living a sinful and unrepentant lifestyle, we are not to eat with them. This is usually known as excommunication. When the church excommunicates someone, it's because that person has shown that they prefer the table of sin, and thus unless and until they repent, they're no longer welcomed here. But these hard truths don't spoil the meal any more than a father's loving discipline and presence ruins a family's supper. Rather, they ensure that the purity and peace of this celebration remains untainted. These hard truths keep the household in order so that the laughter, songs, and stories around the table might be enjoyed with clear consciences. They serve not as an impediment, but as a fence around the fellowship of this table. These hard truths ensure that the wine we taste is joy unmingled. So come in faith and welcome to Jesus. Amen. So the, the charge is this. Remember, uh, in, in uh, C.S. Lewis's great book, uh, The Great Divorce, he has this episode with this character uh, who has a lizard on his shoulder that is, uh, represents lust and fallen desire. 
And this lizard has paralyzed him and, and perverted him. And he's, all he can think is in, in, in a grid of perverse desires and lusts. And an angel uh, comes to this guy and says, do you, do you want to be free of it? Do you want to be free of this paralyzing lust and desire? And finally he says, yes, yes, please uh, get, free me from it. And the angel says, you know it has to die, right? <laughs> he says, okay, yes, kill it. And the angel takes it, breaks its spine, flings it to the ground. And then it turns into this great stallion that he, he, the man rides upon into the high countries of God. And, and the point of it is, that desire had to die. It had to have its spine broken. It had to die, go to the earth, but it was to be resurrected so that it might pursue after with great joy and longing and vibrancy the things of God. But, but mark that, the des- your heart can't help but desire. Uh, but dead hearts are gonna desire dead things. But new hearts desire, have new affections, have new desires, seek after new glories, the glories of our God and the triumphs of his grace. Now hear the blessing of your father. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever and amen.